What do you think when you hear the phrase, there's no such thing as a negative emotion? In this episode, we explore the idea of negative emotions. Through some discussion about the science behind our emotions, we come to understand that while not all emotions are comfortable, they all serve a purpose and are important. Instead of trying to avoid feeling emotions that we usually think of as negative, we can teach ourselves to find the opportunity in the dark times. Welcome to Through the Glass Recovery Podcast, where we believe that connection is the opposite of addiction, vulnerability is the antidote to shame, and that recovery isn't just rewarding, but it's also a lot of fun. We're your hosts, Steve and Julie. Listen as we get together with friends to shed light on the hard things, talk about the other side of addiction, and how we create a life so full, there's no space left for alcohol. Before we dive into this episode, we just want to let you know how much we love hearing from our listeners. If there's been an episode that has affected your life in a positive way, or if you have suggestions on things we could do better, or if there's a topic you'd love to hear us talk about, or would love to talk about with us, drop us an email, recovery at gmail.com. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 36, and we have a great group of people with us tonight. I'm so excited to meet all of you. So we're going to, as always, do introductions, and we will start with Debs. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me. My name is Deborah. I go by Debs or King 13, and I belong to a community called I Am Sober, where I met Julie and Steve, who are our hosts today. I am from Australia, in Melbourne, and I have been sober for 27, just over 27 months. And yeah, life's never been better. Just really, really happy to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Great. Yeah, we're really glad to have you here. And Debs has been on a couple of episodes Mm -hmm. previously and is also a very dear friend of Steve and I. So it is wonderful to have you here and to see your lovely face. And next, we're going to go with Britt. Alrighty, I am Britt. I am a interior designer by day and a recovery coach by hobby. I just released a new book, so that's really exciting. Hopefully I'll touch on that a little bit. And I'm from out South Lake Tahoe, so we're just just now starting to enjoy some sunshine. So I'm feeling really excited and happy just in general because of the sun. <laughs> Awesome. I'm jealous because we are buried in snow right now. It is the end of April and it snowed a lot today. So I'm jealous. (laughs) Anyway, for our listeners, we will include Brit's links and everybody's contact links in our show notes so you can see what it is that they're up to and follow them on social media if you want to and get to know them. And last but not least, we have Dr. Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's exciting to to be on on another podcast. You know, speaking recovery, you know, I'm an emergency physician. I'm a medical director of an ER. I uh, run the EMS trauma programs out in New Hampshire. That's one hat I wear. That's like she does three hats. <laughs> <laughs> most, the most valuable hat I think I probably wear is my recovery hat. I've been sober over five years. I just celebrated five years last, actually April 3rd of this month. Awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. 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 No, it was, uh, it wasn't that difficult once I gave up the fight. You know, it's shocking. And maybe we'll get into some of that. You know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for recovery, de-stigmatizing the 
the chaos that kind of circles around addiction and substance misuse and behavioral problems. So I'm excited to be here and talk. Absolutely. Well, we're really glad to have you. Mm -hmm. So we all know life has its ups and downs. And if we're lucky, most of the time they balance each other out. But sometimes it seems like we're stuck in the dark, like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. For a lot of people, those times can start wearing them down and make them more likely to drink. So we're going to talk about that tonight. What do you do when you're stuck in the dark? What have you learned about handling it, moving through it in a healthy way so you don't turn back to your addiction? And feel free to share some of your personal experience and what that has looked like for you. I can start if you want, Julie. You know, I did a bit of research on this before we got online. And it's perfectly normal to have these thoughts. 100% of the population actually has them, research has shown. And it's the, the amygdala part of the brain regulates and regulates our emotions and also our motivation. And two-thirds of your motivation is actually designed to focus on negativity, believe it or not. So we have to work pretty hard at staying positive. Do you know what I mean? And I know for me, in the end, when I decided that I'd had just enough of enough, I just decided that was it for me. And unfortunately, alcohol does take us to a place where we renownedly get depressed and are full of anxiety. And I did feel like I was in a dark rabbit hole. And you do have to fight. But also, you have to ask yourself, what are these thoughts? And analyze them. Are they permanent? Are they going to pass? And also just listen closely to what is going on because I thought, how am I going to ever get out of this? This is an impossible situation. I've been a long-term drinker for 40 years. And, you know, it really is something that may need medical attention if it's prolonged. But if it is just the natural thoughts that we have, there are ways, and I can go into it in a bit more detail later on, about how we can actually tackle this issue. So that's the good news. I am, I've never heard that two thirds, two thirds of our brain focuses on the negative. Is that what you said? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Cause it's the part that regulates our emotions, our amygdala and it's designed to focus on the negativity. Why? I cannot tell you. I didn't get that far into the research. Maybe Dr. Andrew can help us. Um, <laughs> that feels like a fight or flight thing maybe. But I'm just right now, I'm just feeling normal for how negative I tend to be. So thank you for right. saying that. Yeah. Probably meant to just keep you safe. Yeah, I would that's guess. a really interesting fact. I've never heard it. But now I'm like, I, so I tend to fight the negativity. Like I want to shut it off. Like it feels wrong and I don't like it. And I think I've been surrounded by people in my whole life who are like, oh, just buck up and, you know, focus on the positive and look at the bright side. And so I feel like all those negative emotions are inherently wrong, if that makes sense. And I think that's just, that's what I've been taught since, I don't know, since I was little. And so it always feels like the negative is the wrong. And so then I get mad at myself because I'm focusing on the negative and that just compounds the whole situation. And then I just want to turn it off. Like I've gotten, obviously I, I don't do that anymore, but that forever was what I would get stuck in. Yeah. I have a really easy, fun activity actually that when I start to feel like I'm going into a dark spot and it's really simple, but I literally, I just have a jar 
and it's full of a, of a bunch of different activities that are there to take my mind off of whatever is putting me into a negative space. So literally I'll pick up this jar and it like the energy, I'll just like shake it around. And the energy from that is already uplifting. And then I will pull out whatever activity it is. And they can be anywhere from taking just a few seconds to do some breath work, um, going into like coloring books and taking a minute to color. And all of these activities are so small and you can spend one minute to 10 minutes doing them however long you need. So you feel like you can pull yourself back out of that space. It's, um, you know, I think when I think about negative emotions, I really think the way I look at it is what lenses am I wearing? How am I interpreting the world? You know, humans, we tend to interpret the world based off of what we knew as kids. And so our experiences as children and you know what I'm, probably speaking too early is the adverse experiences as children that gives us lenses to kind of navigate life through. And I'll give you an example. I'm a, I was raised in a perfectionistic family. I was told I could do better. My parents were loving me when they said that because they wanted me to succeed. But to a little kid continuously hearing that you could do better for me equated to negative self-talk. I'm not right. good at not good enough. Yeah. And so that thought addiction, and this is where my my stance for recovery really is about thinking addictions. We're thought addicts at first. Things like not good enough, not lovable, not important. These are all thought addictions we develop as children. And our limbic systems, which Debs was kind of bringing into the amygdala, the, the hippocampus and all that, that's our, that's our memory and emotional centers. And those get hardwired. And so it's not shocking that someone like me would go out in the world, even at 46, and I still have a limbic system of a five-year-old that thinks he's not good enough. And so I interpret the world in a manner that that satisfies that narrative, so to see. I raised my hand. I was like, yeah, that's me. This, this isn't unique to me, by the way, you know, but I'm reframing recovery in this manner because it's a lot more palatable for a guy like me. To say, look, my thoughts and my feelings are skewed often. And so when I'm in a dark space, I have a choice. I can choose to distract from it, which sometimes I have to, because if I'm in a very dark place, it's life-saving to distract. So I go up on a mountain, I go backcountry skiing, you know, I distract from that because I don't want to go back to the behaviors that I had in the past. That being said, there's opportunity in darkness. There's opportunity to walk into darkness and say, why? The whys of recovery are the most fascinating things to a guy like me. I'm always trying to find answers. I, I literally chose a profession that is perfect for me, right? I, it's, it's, it's emergency medicine. I need answers. I want to know I did it right. Mm -hmm. What better profession to beat yourself up all the time, though, you know, <laughs> but to be an ER doc who getting it right 100% of the time is an expectation from the general public, but it's right. not practical. So, you know, <laughs> you know, if I was a baseball player batting 700, I'd be a Hall of Famer. Right. right. So, you know, so I actually subconsciously chose a profession that would satisfy the, the little kid in me. And so I think, you know, when I think of, I, I ask myself, what lenses am I going to wear today? Am I going to wear the lenses of darkness? And if so, I'm going to see darkness. If I'm going to wear the lenses of lightness, I'm going to go and walk into light. And that doesn't mean I can wake up and say, hey, I'm just going to find happiness today. Because that's one of the biggest breakdowns for humans is that we feel like we always have to be happy and always feel good. 
That's what our parents say. Just feel happy. Mm -hmm. I tell my kid, let's, let's look at when you're sad. Let's look at when you're anger and do not, there are no negative emotional states. They're survival. There was a reason why we have anger. Now I would say there's adaptive behaviors and there's maladaptive or problematic behaviors. And I learned that quite well when I saw what drinking and drugs did to me. Mm-hmm. And I used a lot of other behaviors. I've gotten rid of this concept of substance use disorder when I do talks. I really focus on the thought that this is an upstream thing. This is a thinking and emotional breakdown. And then there's behaviors that are associated. And us that are in recovery from substance misuse, we chose substances to quiet the storm in our brain. That's that. Now, I can't go back and drink today. There's no right way I'm going to get so emotionally sober then I can go drink. I know that this, you know, my brain has a circuit that was fired up around 30 years of age and, and that's it. So this is a reward circuit where we're dealing with powers and, uh, we're dealing with evolution here, but you know, which lenses am I choosing to wear, you know, and walking into the pain is where I find possibility, you know, and it's, it's not always fun, but it is necessary. We can reshape that part of our brain too. The, what Debs is speaking to, this is called neuroplasticity. You know, by, by staying accountable to the fact that I'm responsible for my thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Every time I do that and I help myself, you know, and I use the world to feel not good enough, I am reshaping that part of my brain that wants to keep me in that five-year-old state. And that's, that's brilliant. That's the part where when you walk into it and ask yourself the why and say, okay, this is okay that I'm here. This is okay that I'm here right now. Let me explore this really crappy feeling and find out where it's coming from. That's the opportunity to rewire because that's when I'm sitting in the uncomfortable. This is where I don't want to be. Like I understand that this is where I am. And if I can sit in that and figure out the why, like I understand that I'm there. The one thing that Julie's always said to me, she said this to me once and she was like, it's okay that you're there. And this was the first time I ever heard this because I was like trying to fight it so hard, right? And it's okay that you're there. You just can't stay there for too long. And she's absolutely right. I can stay there for a day or two and it's not going to be really detrimental to my performance or anything like that. Like I'll have a couple of bad days, but I can't sit there and hang on to that like a shield and use it as protection because it's not going to do me any good. I'm not doing anything. I'm not trying to find that why. As long as I'm still trying to work through that why, I'll be okay. And sometimes, like you said, Andrew, I got to distract because I'm not finding the why this time. I'm just not going to find the why this time. And I, I call myself out when I'm there. And it's difficult to call yourself out when you're there because that's the time when I generally want to isolate. I don't want to tell someone the crazy crap that goes through my mind. But at the same time, if I give that stuff a place to live outside of my, outside of my mind, it gives me a lot greater chance to work through it. So listening to you guys talk, I have two different versions of being stuck in the dark, I think. So I have like this acute version of like crushing hopelessness where like like there's heavy stuff in life right there's just certain things that I carry around with me that are just heavy not not my whole life isn't perfect and and nobody's is 
And for the most part, that's fine. And then every so often it feels like this stuff just becomes crushing. Like it's so heavy. I can't handle it. Like curled up in a ball crying on the bed because I just can't do life. And like that feels like this acute version of being stuck in the dark. And when I'm at that point, there's no like wading into that darkness versus like like I just have to I don't know hold on for dear life that's generally when I, I like sit there with somebody on the phone and just cry like I don't know how to get out of that and it almost like I can bring up those positive I know the positive tools I've been doing this long enough you know I know change the lens that you're looking through and you know switch it look at you know get somebody else's perspective all of these things they're like when I'm in that place I'm just not even interested in any of that. Like, I just want to cry and I want to be sad or angry or whatever it is. And the only thing that works when I'm in that place is reminding myself that this is going to end. Mm -hmm. And that was that little fact, I think, was new for me in recovery because I never gave emotions a chance to end when I was drinking. Right. I just drank them away or I, I, I didn't even drink them away. I just drank until they finally did go away and somehow in my brain, I was convinced that the, the drinking was what was making them pass. Turns out they just pass on their own. That was news for me. <laughs> but for me, that's like, that is the, when I'm in that really awful, like gut-wrenching, soul-twisting place, all I can do is lay there and feel that shit and remind myself that I'm not going to feel that way forever. A lot of times it's just put myself to bed and wake up and hope I feel better the next day. And then there's that other almost like just depressy kind of like depressive version of, of darkness where I can journal and I can dig in and I can really try to reframe. And, and I feel like that's like a working version, like a functional version of the darkness for me where I can actually analyze it a little bit and really learn from it and find the opportunity in it. But listening to you guys talk, I feel like those are two very, like I have two versions of dark times in my life. I've never analyzed this before, but those are two distinctly different. Do you feel yourself slipping into the darker version? Like, is there a chance or an opportunity to catch that before it gets so far? I don't know. I, like, always try to break down the feeling as far back to the beginning from where it came from as possible. And so I think it's so important to figure out where these ideas are coming from in the beginning and the root where the root of the problem is. So hopefully the goal is to be able to stop it before it starts, right? The area of like riding the urge, catching the wave before it, before it rolls over. Yeah, I think, go ahead, Debs. Oh no, I was just gonna say, Julie, I think your reactions too, you know, one is a very emotional reaction to the, to the dark thoughts and the other one is a physical process that the body needs. It needs to go through that process. And that's when you're in the moment of change because you'll find that once you do go through it and you do wake up the next day, very rarely do we feel exactly the same as we did when we went to sleep that night. You may not be great, but you certainly won't be exactly the same, I don't think. And if you are, that's when you need professional help. Right. So it's a natural process. You need these releases. You really do, I think. And I think my mum taught me one thing. She said, Deb, she said, you're going to either control your mind or your mind's going to control you because that's how powerful it is. Mm -hmm. And this is where the panic attacks that people have and anxiety and depression, of which I suffered all, and so did my family, the female side, very hypertension focused. I had to learn to change those pathways in my brain, just like Dr. Andrew said, all those neuropathways, the drinking ones, the thoughts, the, the triggers, everything. 
basically, remember how I told you about the road? I've made a new highway in my brain and now I'm on that new highway. They won't go away. And those thoughts, and it's quite normal, they'll always return. They're always going to be there. That's part of this disorder. But I am on that new highway now that I can override the old road because I don't want to go down the wonky old road. I want to drive on the nice smooth road. And so it takes, it takes a lot of time to do that. Mm-hmm. I know uh, there was the one time, it was not too, too long ago, I was probably on day two of a, of a low. And... I was driving home from work and I was just about to go to the grocery store and I drove past a cannabis store and the thought goes, what went through my mind was like, it'd be nice to smoke a joint tonight. And I'm like, what in the flying fuck are you thinking? Like, seriously, you don't even smoke the stuff. And then, you know, I'll send a text message. Look what just went through my mind. I understand now. I I need to really dig in because I'm not really thinking that that's going to be fun. Like, I need to actually take a look at that thought and where I'm at and why I'm there because something has to change, whether it's just the lens or... I need to change something about what I'm doing because what I'm doing right now isn't isn't healthy. It's not benefiting me, right? But it's just, it was interesting how just out of the blue, you talk about the highway. The highway is, is okay, I recognize that, that, that here's an exit that I probably would have taken at some point in my past, but I'm just not going to get off on this highway anymore. I'm just keep driving. Right, and I'm going to tell someone about that's the that silly road named cannabis, and I'm going to carry on. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, the escape, the exit, escape routes. Yep. Yeah. Right, and I should clarify: even when I'm in really dark places, I don't often even think about alcohol anymore, which is good. That's not something that ever crosses my mind. I still wish that I didn't feel that way, but I don't experience like cravings, so to speak when I'm in that place, it's still just not fun to be there. And had I really hit some of those dark spots early on, if I was like two or three months sober, that could have been a really big danger zone for me. You know, I think when I started recovery, I had a very limited emotional capacity. You know, my capacity to tolerate emotional discomfort was very small. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I prove that because I, I readily used behaviors such as drinking alcohol, using drugs, over-exercising, food, you name it. Um, I used behaviors to quiet those storms down in my brain because I really did not have capacity to feel discomfort, emotional pain. And, and, I, and I lied to myself by saying, oh, this is okay. I, don't, I shouldn't have to feel this way. And as a result of doing this work, I, I call it the emotional sobriety work. You know, I built this this robust emotional capacity. You know, I have the ability to to sit in uncomfortability and be okay with it. And it's not to say that I go out in the world to find sadness and despair, but I think of like I think of my my uh, my work. You know, we see a lot of trauma, a lot of chaos in the emergency department, and my ability to sit with students. And help them through the process of what we're seeing and educate and whatnot. My ability to be a father of uh, teenagers that are dealing with their own chaos and do it in a manner that affords some some adaptive changes for them rather than, you know, having them just distract, you know, the way I used to. So 
So the emotional capacity, it's a thing. And, and Julie, what you're speaking to is building emotional capacity, willing to sit in discomfort. And, and Steve, what you're speaking to is the ability to have the self-awareness. How great is it that in your recovery, you have the self-awareness first so that you self-regulated and didn't go off the road because in active use, we have lost access to the part of our brain that allows us to make those decisions. The prefrontal cortex goes offline mm -hmm. and you're operating off a reward circuit. And so if you didn't have that, that self-awareness and that self, you wouldn't have been able to self-regulate and you would have gotten off the highway and tried the THC train. I really, I like, I, I literally was <laughs> like, I Oreo train. <laughs> I, I for sure that time I'd grab the Oreo train, but you know, it is what, uh, yeah, no, that's normally you know, what over exercise train. I do that routinely. So, <laughs> right. Well, I, it's easier to do that, that than it is some other trains for sure. Right. But yeah, like I was, I almost laughed at my, I was laughing at myself. I'm like, you, I sent Julia text message and I'm like, you, listen to this, right? Like, like, really? Really? I don't even smoke this stuff. Yeah. But there it is. Like, you you just, uh, the self-awareness part, I think, if we're going to talk about self-awareness and sobriety, it's absolutely amazing when you give yourself a chance to actually listen to those thoughts. Because a lot of listening to what goes on in my mind and then giving it a place to make it real allows it to, me to have it reflected back, whether it's on paper, journaling, whether it's talking to someone, it gets reflected back. I make it real. I stop telling myself anything else. And then I really get to look at it, whether it's the sadness, whether it's grieving my past self, whether it's... <sighs> God, you know, lost time with a, a lot of, I think, the sadness, especially in, in early, early recovery is just like, I can't believe that I did all of this stuff to myself, like beat myself up like that. And even at two years, I'm at just past two years and I just had a great exper experience with my mother and talking about the past. And I got to grieve, and I'm saying this like a good thing, but I got to grieve some more of my past. And it, it came with tears and it came with that sadness. But I understand that where it all came from and it puts more pieces of that like lost puzzle back there. It, it, it closes some gaps and it actually turns out to be freeing even though it can be sad or angry or whatever that may be, if you can find that why or even give it a chance, then what a beautiful way to be able to change the lens. I tell people to focus on behavior, you mm -hmm. know, focus, especially in early recovery, I think it's so key for us to focus on behaviors that are, are consistent with living and mm -hmm. connecting and loving ourselves and others. Because the thinking mechanism is we're now speaking to and our, our emotional centers are all screwed up. Mm -hmm. We've proven that for decades, you know, so, so if, if we focus on behaviors, regardless of how we're thinking or, or excuse me, what we're thinking and how we're feeling, we will progress in recovery. We won't go backwards. You know, we will connect with others. 
So it's really, it's about the behavior and, it, and it's, it's actually in the behavior that we're going to find liberation from that, that problematic thinking and emotional circuit in our limbic system, the behavior of accountability, you know, that is, that is the behavior that is important is the fact that we are owning it in real time saying, Hey, I'm using this situation. Do it with your boss. It's awesome. I've done it with CEO of the hospital. You know, I'm using you right now to feel like I don't do it right. You know, be transparent, be radically honest. It's fascinating to see how that affects changes in ourselves and others. I love that. I don't know. I find they, they say you should never go through recovery alone. Like this isn't something you do alone. This is something you do with connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll find that when it, when one of those thoughts starts and it, it, if it just catches a little bit of momentum, it's like a snowball. Right. And I mean, it can just build and build and build. And then all of a sudden I'm digging into things that, you know, I felt in my childhood, in addition to everything that I'm feeling right now, and it just it gets it this giant thing that it, I lose complete control and it develops like a, a whole life of its own. And I think sometimes the most useful thing there for me is just talking to somebody else who actually gets it. Like that's where the commune, the recovery community comes in. And that's when if I go to a meeting and just dump all of the crazy stuff going through my head, I can, somebody else can like Steve was saying, reflect it back and kind of help bring it back into perspective and pick out the little bits and be like, okay, let's like stop the snowball, you know, let's maybe back it up a little bit. Let's focus on what actually started it. And I don't know, just gaining somebody else's perspective and gaining somebody else's understanding can be maybe the most powerful thing when stuff gets so big like that. Yeah. There's nothing that says that the lens in which I see the world through is, is, is clean. It just, I just think it's clean when I'm looking through it. And when I give it a chance to give, give it to someone else, they can wipe that lens off and I can see, holy crap, like the lens in which I'm seeing this right now is actually pretty dirty. And because someone else got to take that and clean it up and then feed it back to me through their lens because they've healed through that trauma or whatever that may be, then I get to look at it through a different lens with different words and I get to understand it a different way and I get to ask questions about my own self through that. And I've learned a lot about myself, my own biases, my own, a lot of things just by throwing it out there, giving it to someone else. The recovery community is amazing. For, for this because we all we're all a reflection of ourselves in one way or another and and just to see it back there and see the flaw in the lens that I'm looking at life through at that time yeah stories we tell ourselves mm. you know more often than not the stories I tell myself have no truth in fact they're usually the opposite you know when I say I'm not good enough and I access that little five-year-old brain, that limbic system, you know, when I actually inquire into the situation, the circumstance, usually I find out it's not the case. And so I can spiral for days in the, I'm not good enough, you know, circuit. I didn't do it right circuit. Mm -hmm. And the moment I own it, often I find out that that's not true. And that I am good enough. And if I look at the evidence, I tell my kids this, I say, look at the evidence. You know, when my kids have a breakdown, 
they'll say, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I'll say, well, what's, what's the evidence that there, there's truth to this story? You know, and we, we talk, we, we talk about upbringing and, and trauma and, and it's so, it's so important for us to acknowledge that our experiences as children, you know, affect us as adults, you know, it's how we navigate life. And when we can see, when I finally could see that I was the problem, mm -hmm. wasn't the world, the world, no. the world, world's going to be the same. They're going to do their world stuff tomorrow. And they did their world stuff yesterday. <laughs> But Andrew, right? It's yeah. Andrew's interpretation of circumstance that he sees, he reads, he hears. You know, that interpretation is where my breakdowns occur. And I have to ask myself, you know, if I don't like what I'm seeing or hearing or reading, who do I need to be in the world to affect a change that's adaptive for the world? You know, and am I willing to show up for the world or am I going to just sit around and whine about it? You know, because there's a lot of whining in me. I want to whine a lot because it feels good to be a whiner, right? I got mm -hmm. people that rescue me. They co-sign it. They're like, oh, yeah, you're so, you're definitely yeah, victim-oriented. <laughs> they co-sign it. <laughs> you know, I can get it. I can enroll people into the chaos that's Andrew's existence. Yep. And all the people in the world saying, yeah, you should be upset about that. They're not helping me. They're enabling my emotional yeah. fragility. You know, so... So it's, it's fascinating, but, but find the evidence, you know, more often than not, the stories we tell ourselves, that reactive story, when you get triggered, you read an email and you get triggered. You guys know what I'm talking about. Oh, that right there, that is Olympic system 101 when you were about five or six, and there's probably no truth to the way that you're feeling and you're reacting, you know, oh. it's, it's, it's skewed and take a, take a pause, take a deep breath. Don't write back. <laughs> I've learned don't, that. Don't write don't back. Don't respond, especially if yeah. it's, you know, the leaders, uh, the seniors leadership of the hospital. <laughs> I think we've all learned that lesson at one point or another. Don't respond. <laughs> Take a breath. Take a breath. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thank you guys for coming on tonight and spending some time with us and sharing your thoughts. I really, really liked the find the evidence. We, we, we talked a lot about our brain and our thoughts and, and where they go and, and a lot of the scientific part, which was really cool because we, we don't really often talk about that part on, on the podcast. So it's really neat to see that we can rewire ourselves and that it is a lot of our inner child that creates that initial response. And then we have a chance to change that lens. So I want to thank you, Brent. Thank you, Dr. Andrew. And thank you, Debs, for coming on tonight and sharing with us. Yeah, we appreciate you guys. You're welcome. Nice to you. And thank you to our listeners, too. We wouldn't be here without you. If you haven't yet, we want to remind you how much it means to us if you'll take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen. Your reviews tell the platforms that our content is useful, and they'll make sure more people see it. And of course, we'll be back next week with a conversation about filling the void left behind when we stopped drinking. <laughs>